Okay, we are back. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And Kevin Soling is standing by to talk about his highly anticipated documentary, The Gilligan Manifesto, that was just at the La Femme International Film Festival this Saturday. Good morning, Kevin. Morning. Hi, how are you doing? Great. So here I'm thinking, okay, as a kid, I'm watching Gilligan's Island. I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were we all yeah, clueless? People. Yeah, we're all clueless. Yeah. So tell me, what uh, led you to do this documentary? Um, basically, uh, I, I just sort of, you know, compulsively uh, deconstruct, you know, media and popular culture and stuff. And so I uh, was watching Gilligan's Island, and I, I noticed this uh, recurring theme of uh, that, that basically um, the uh, society that they had constructed on the island was, was this communist society, and that the, the conflicts in, in most of the episode uh, seemed to involve uh, some vestige of, of democratic capitalism rearing its ugly head, uh, causing chaos and destabilizing society and creating conflicts and having to be uh, excised so that communism and harmony could be restored uh, at the end of, of the episode. And uh, after doing uh, additional research, it, it turned out that, uh, that this was uh, largely intentional. I, and you went and interviewed the creator, Sherwood Schwartz. That is correct. What was that like? Uh, it was great. It took it took uh, an awful lot to track him down and get to talk to him. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, in his in his eighties at the time, and uh, while not fully retired, he just was was very difficult to reach. And uh, it was actually uh, had to track him down through uh, his his son-in-law is Lawrence Juber, who's uh, a member of uh, was a member of Paul McCartney's band Wings. Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah, brilliant <laughs> guitar player. And uh, so I, I met up with him at, at a Beatles convention. And, and uh, happily, he was there with his wife, and uh, she put me in touch with Sherwood and uh, set up uh, an appointment with, uh, you know, with, with him. And, and he just couldn't have been nicer and uh, uh, extremely insightful, uh, extremely intelligent uh, man. And uh, he, he actually had a master's in biology, and he, uh, while well, he didn't understand. He wasn't a political science major, so he didn't necessarily understand that the the, the structure that he was creating was was specifically communist. But he, mm-hmm. but it was intentionally created uh, that way. He just didn't, you know, just didn't quite, you know, name it, <laughs> give it the that name. But so he, uh, he he very clearly had an agenda and and knew what he was doing. And uh, one of the the main components that was that was very intentional was um, at that. Uh, that point in, in in history, in American history, there was uh, a great deal of paranoia and fear about uh, nuclear war, and uh, right. people were uh, adding bomb shelters to their houses, and and that mm-hmm. was a common feature of of many houses in suburbia, uh, and 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 the fear of nuclear war was 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 a real one, and. Uh, uh, the, the 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 pilot for Gilligan's Island uh, was filmed exactly or roughly a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so the idea was germinating at that time. Uh, but it was this notion of how do you survive nuclear war? Uh, so Gilligan's Island deals directly with that, and the, and the storm that shipwrecks them is 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 a consciously and deliberately an analog of of nuclear war, and it is these these seven survivors having to figure out how to get along, how to rebuild society after you know after this apocalyptic event. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in my research, it's the only uh, post-apocalyptic work of literature that's that's actually 
you know, kind of optimistic and happy. Uh, most are, you know, Mad Max kind of scenarios right. and cannibals roaming and things of that nature. I thought it was really interesting how there were so many um, viewpoints on the characters in the show. Well, the seven deadly sins, the the dwarfs. I mean, there were so many different viewpoints of what they represented. Well, m- my point there was to show that that those that there's there's bad uh, <laughs> forms of analysis mm-hmm. and. Uh, so, so there is this common thing that's been bouncing around that the characters represent the seven deadly sins, but and I and I, you know, take time to show why why that's a bad uh, effort at at trying to come up with a theory because it it uh, it reveals nothing. Uh, if if they were represented the seven deadly sins, if this was intentional and this was you know meant to be the point of the show, then the characters would suffer as, as a result of their sinful nature. Yeah. And and because you don't see that, it's just it's just a, a bad hypothesis that just became popular just because, you know, it seemed like it kind of fit. You know, there are seven mm-hmm. characters and there are seven sins, deadly sins, so, you know, there's a connection, but they're, they're you know, it's, it's a feeble one that, that, that contributes nothing. Right. Um, but, you know, there was a, that was the reason to address it. Now, when you went and interviewed uh, two of the actors, Russell Johnson and Don Wells, who played the professor and Marianne, what was their reaction to what you were telling them you were going to do? Well, um, you know, where Sherwood was very happy to talk about the uh, the broad implications of the show and and the and his his philosophy behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, they were actors, and they kind of thought about the fact that well, you know, we were hired as actors, and as actors, it was our job to to do the best uh, performance and delivery, and we didn't really you know think a whole lot about the broader ramifications or, or the content. They were they were fascinated by it. They thought it was interesting, yes. uh, but uh, you know, but they were they were more concerned about uh, about the acting component the professor the russell johnson uh, did have uh, some history with uh, having to sign loyalty oaths and uh, you know as an actor in order to get jobs he oh. he uh, talked about having worked alongside uh, in one film ronald reagan and was telling me how uh, how reagan was was obsessed with trying to with questioning everyone who worked on the production to find out if they were commies so that he could you know well it was later uncovered so that he could rat on them but that this was this was a great fix of, of, of Reagan's <laughs> while they were, you know, on, on the set. Um, so it was it was certainly very pervasive, and you had the Hollywood blacklisting. So they, they certainly were aware of these things, uh, but they, they didn't really um, get too involved with the politics of the show the way Sherwood Schwartz did. Now, when you, when you went and watched um, these shows again, were all kinds of new things coming up? Because now I'm going to watch you know look on youtube and see it in a whole different light oh yeah absolutely i mean i was you know piecing it all together and there's there's a lot of i mean it, it's it's wonderful humor and you see you know just just how uh incisive uh, the humor is and, and some of it is is very relevant uh, there was uh, a screening uh just the other uh, night at the lemley in, in beverly hills and there's a uh, uh, an episode of Gilligan's Island where they have a, a presidential election, and uh, uh, it, it, it you know it doesn't matter which which cycle it is, it it speaks you know it speaks very uh, uh, it's very prescient in, in, in its content, and, and it just uh, you know even to to this election to the to and, and all the previous ones, and you know just just revealing and exposing the dysfunction. Uh, so yeah, it, it's. It was interesting going back and, and thinking that something you know that a show is largely slapstick, and then seeing that a lot of the dialogue is is uh, is, is much more um, uh, 
uh, perceptive uh, than than and poignant than than one than just you know than just silly slapstick jokes. Mm-hmm. I also uh, before we wrap up in about five minutes, I also want to mention. Uh, you also produced and directed the first theatrically released documentary on education, The War on Kids. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, that uh, that film was, was born out of this uh, realization that the, the, the baby boomer generation that had been so aggressive in fighting for uh, youth rights and uh, had basically betrayed its uh, its mission and had basically enacted the most oppressive uh, rules regarding the governance of schools uh, through zero tolerance and uh, solitary confinement for kids and uh, the, the persistence of corporal punishment in 19 states, uh, denial of bathroom access. Uh, and, and after digging in, I, I learned that these were actually just, you know, sort of superficial and that the core of uh, the school system itself, just uh, the act of uh, holding kids in captivity, uh, of uh, forcing them to be in a location, uh, and uh, the process of, of schooling is, is one of indoctrination where there is, uh, uh, kids are, are powerless and ultimately uh, develop learned helplessness in this environment. But all the best efforts of, of educators to, to teach are undermined by the system itself and that the public school system as its design can never be reformed. Uh, it, it is a wholly destructive uh, institution, you know, that is comprised of well-meaning people. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a shocking and powerful and disturbing revelation. And uh, that, uh, you know, the film shows, you know, the lengths of uh, of just how bad schools can be and will be and and even the 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 best you know the so-called best schools and there was always this denial going on that oh those bad things take place but they don't take place in my school well they do they just uh, manifest themselves in different ways and you're just you know looking at precisely the wrong things uh it's you know there, there is no there, you place a mammal in captivity and uh the, the very first thing it will do is figure out how to escape and if you've conditioned you know that that animal you know be human be an animal to to not want to escape it's it's because they've developed learned helplessness mm-hmm. uh and that's basically what we're, we're doing to our kids and uh there's uh, tremendous stress as a result of it and the the kids that do best in schools are the ones that just are able to you know deal better with you know cope better with with stress yes yes well i know it was um it won best educational documentary at the new york independent film and video festival so congratulations thank you very powerful What's up yeah. next for you? Uh, well, I, I'm working on a uh, film right now. Um, it, it's funny, I was working at the same time as Ron Howard on a Beatles doc, but mine is uh, a much, much darker film. It deals with the summer of 66 and uh, shows that uh, the, the backlash that everyone assumed uh, was related to Lennon's statement about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus was actually a backlash about something that McCartney had said and that they, you know, went towards Lennon because uh, McCartney was just decrying uh, racism in America and uh, uh, the Beatles had, had long taken a stance uh, in opposition to segregation and had forced uh, uh, the Gator Bowl to desegregate, which also put all sorts of other venues uh, on notice that if they wanted the Beatles, they were going to have to desegregate. And uh, the South remembered this, and McCartney continuously kept baiting uh, not just the South, but, but racism and racists in general. And uh, it was it was the reaction to that that led to the uh, the violence and uh, the boycotts and the record burnings and the KKK rallies 
and uh, Lenin was just used as a, a convenient excuse. Uh, so it's it's a uh, a rewriting of, of yeah. history through uh, you know more accurate <laughs> telling. Very fascinating. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Deborah of La Femme, who uh, was associate producer on this documentary. By the way, that is correct. That's fantastic. And uh, you also had somebody that was in the original um, Chicago Seven narrating, uh, Rennie Davis. Yeah, Rennie Davis. Uh, and you know, unfortunately, Tom Hayden just just passed away uh, oh, yeah. uh, Sunday. Um, but yeah, that. Rennie Davis uh, did did the narration for the Gilligan Manifesto. And uh, he was he was just wonderful to work with, and uh, a wonderful human being, and it was just very enjoyable to to work with him. It's a great honor. Well, it sounds like you are one busy guy. Um, if people want more information about you and your projects, where can they go? Uh, they can go to well for the Gilligan Manifesto. They can go to uh, uh, I guess there's a Facebook page. I think there's a website for it. Um, uh, I need to update spectaclefilms.com. Spectacle Films is my website. They can follow me on Twitter. Kevin is spelled with a C. Mm-hmm. Kevin Soling uh, on Twitter. Um, and uh, so there, there are a bunch of places. Sounds good. All right. Well, yeah. thank you so much for calling in, and congrats on your great work and all the accolades. Great. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for, for, for having me and for talking. Oh, sure. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers. That was Kevin Soling calling in to talk about his really highly anticipated documentary, The Gilligan Manifesto, that was just at the 12th Annual La Femme International Film Festival on Saturday. If you missed any part of this segment, it will be up on my blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I have one last guest, really packed it in today with some great people. Uh, the last guest is double threat Zuhair, Zuhar, Khan, and if I'm messing up his name, I'm going to have him correct me. And he is a filmmaker, an actor, and he's going to talk about his film, Three Holes, Two Brads, and a Smoking Gun, in just a bit. So we'll take a little break, and then we'll be back. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. <laughs> 